How many of you have a weather app on your phone? Okay, almost all of you. Okay, so let's, let's do a thing. Raise your hand if you check your weather app at least once a day. Okay. Keep it up if you check it more than three times a day. Five times a day? <laughs> Ten times a day? Anyone? Anyone? Well, we have some people who are pretty serious about the weather. That's good to, that's good to know. Uh, in our family, we have, we have someone who loves weather and loves to check weather, and that's our son, Daniel. So uh, one day for his birthday, actually, we went and we got a tour of the National Weather Service, the Louisville branch. That's, that was his birthday gift. <laughs> we took a tour. There was more to that, but we took a tour of the National Weather Service, the Louisville branch. I got to tell you, it was really, really neat. And do you, do you happen to know what the mission statement is for the National Weather Service? Probably not. But I'm going to throw it up here on the screen. It's this. It's to provide weather, water, and climate data, forecasts, warnings, and impact-based decision support services. Notice, for the protection of life and property and the enhancement of the national economy. Notice, the reason why they provide weather data. Do you see it there? It, it's for, notice, the protection of life and property. And I have to tell you, this was made abundantly clear when we took the tour of their Louisville branch. You see, you know why the National Weather Service labors and strives to provide accurate forecasts? It's because storms are powerful and dangerous. We could say it like this. Storms are to be respected. Last week, we kicked off a short series in the book of Psalms, and we're calling it simply Summer Psalms. And <laughs> a great title, I know. And last week, uh, Steve Wilm, he did an excellent job of giving both an overview of the entire Psalter as well as an exposition of the first two Psalms, Psalms 1 and 2. And you'll recall that the Psalter, it's not, it's not a bag of random marbles, but instead a fine woven tapestry. That is, as Steve argued, uh, this book has been carefully put together. Indeed, the, the Psalter is broken up into five books. You guys went over this last week. And these five books, these five divisions... They have a storyline, or they have a narrative, and I have it up here on the screen. These are this kind of 30,000-foot view. But books one and two describe how David, how he suffers in his rise to power to become the king of Israel. Then in book three, we learn about his sons, the Davidic kings, how they break the covenant. 
In book four, we get an interlude, a break from, from David. And these psalms in particular, they, they recount all that God has done for Israel. And in this brief interlude, the, the message is really simple, and that is God still reigns. He's still in control. And then book five looks beyond Israel's exile to when God establishes his true Davidic ruler, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Therefore, the most basic message of the Psalter, and I believe Steve, he mentioned this a couple times last week, and it's worth repeating. The basic message of the Psalter is this, that there is a coming future Davidic king, the Messiah, who will bring all of God's promises to pass, usher in God's saving rule and reign, put everything under his feet, and ultimately usher in a new covenant to come. This is the basic message of the Psalter. Well, this morning, we're going to study a psalm from book one, Psalm 29. And in this psalm, you know what David likens God to? He likens God to a storm, a powerful storm. However, David likens God to a storm not simply so that we would respect God, though we ought to do that. No, David likens God to a powerful storm so that we might understand an important and what I want to argue a life-giving truth about our majestic God. And what is that life-giving truth? Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 29. That's page 461 in that paperback Bible in the seat in front of you. And I invite you to follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read Psalm 29, verses 1 through 11. The entire psalm. Hear now the word of the Lord. Psalm 29, a psalm of David. David writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf. In Syrian, like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. This is describing lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, 
all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And all God's people said, Amen. And amen, this is God's word. Last week, Stephanie and I were in Florida celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary. And while we were there, we went to the Kennedy Space Center. And what a treasure of information that place is. And as many of you no doubt know, astronauts, they face many challenges in space. In fact, you know what is arguably the greatest challenge astronauts face? It's weightlessness. Did you know that while in space, without regular exercise, astronauts can rapidly lose bone and muscle mass? Get this. They need to exercise and use resistance bands at least two hours each day just to maintain their current bone and muscle mass. Otherwise, it will quickly diminish. You see, it is good that we feel weight. It is healthy for us. For as astronauts let us know, weightlessness is detrimental to your well-being. And you know what? Psalm 29 agrees. Notice how this psalm begins. It begins with an exhortation to ascribe to the Lord glory. Did you see that in the first several verses? Though David is speaking to the heavenly beings by his writing, by him penning this, he's actually calling for all of God's people to ascribe glory to the Lord. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for glory comes from the same root for the word weight. Did you know this? So when David says, ascribe to the Lord glory, you know what David is saying? David is saying simply this, give God the most weight in your life. That is, have the Lord be the most dominant and significant thing in your life. When he says, ascribe to the Lord glory, he's saying, give God the most weight in your life. Friend, the truth is, we all need weight. We do. The question is, what or who should bear the most weight in our lives? And Psalm 29 clearly answers that question. We are called to give the Lord the greatest weight in our lives. Now, why would David write this? Why would he exhort us to ascribe to the Lord glory? You know why? 
because we often don't. Sadly, and I'll speak for myself here, sadly, is it not true, Christian, that God often bears little weight in our lives? Now, now we say God is important, we say he is glorious, we say he is majestic, yet the truth is he can often rest lightly in our hearts and on our minds. Right? His, his holiness is not revered but trivialized. His commands are not kept but ignored. Though God is indeed glorious, we could often treat him lightly. In fact, let me just let me just ask you, what do you give the most weight to in your life? What occupies your mind and thoughts? Is it obtaining a certain lifestyle? You know, looking a certain way, wearing a certain brand, projecting a certain image, staying at certain hotels, eating at certain restaurants. What are you most concerned about? What do you always talk about with your friends? Is it the latest fashion trend? Is it how to get more money? Maybe what bears the most weight in your life is the success of your children. Or maybe what bears the most weight in your life is your career. Or maybe what bears the most weight in your life, which you give the most thought and attention to, is your physical appearance. If you really want to know what you give the most weight to, a good thing to look at would be your checking account. Look at how you spend your money and how you spend your time. Or take an inventory of what interests you on social media. What websites do you frequently visit? Christian, friend, this text is calling you, it's calling me, it's exhorting us to ascribe to the Lord glory. That is to give Him the most weight and significance in your life. Because please hear me, please hear me. If you choose to give something other than God the greatest weight in your life, you know who you will be like? An astronaut in space who is atrophied. You know why? Because all these trivial things we often run to, they cannot sustain you. Please hear me, they are too light compared to the majesty and glory of God. I guess what I'm asking is this, friend, to put it this way, do you have a weight problem? Seriously, that is, do you find yourself giving the things of this world more significance in your life than God? If so, Scripture would call you to repent of that, to confess and to turn from these idols, these trivial idols, and go all in to God. Give the Lord the most weight in your life. And what we're about to see as we work our way through this psalm is that in the psalm, we discover that David actually gives several compelling reasons as to why we ought to give God the most weight in our lives. You know what the first reason is? The very first reason why we ought to give God the most weight in our lives, it's simply this, 
Because look, he deserves it. Look at verses 1 and 2. David writes, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Uh, several weeks ago, Dmitry Rodenko was in his home in Denver when a car pulled into his driveway. Now, Dimitri wasn't expecting any company or delivery, so he went outside to see who it was. Who's this guy that just pulled into his driveway? Well, by the time he got out to his driveway, the driver was already outside of the car, standing next to the trunk. And when the driver opened the trunk, Dimitri immediately recognized what was inside. You know what it was? It was the Stanley Cup. The actual trophy. You see, the delivery was actually intended for Dimitri's neighbor. <laughs> Colorado Avalanche Captain Gabriel Landeskog. As some of you know, I know Grant knows, the Colorado Avalanche won the Stanley Cup a few weeks ago. And tradition is, each player gets to have it for a day. However, this prized possession was delivered to the wrong address. Though it showed up in his driveway, please hear me, Dimitri didn't deserve that trophy, did he? Now, who deserved it? His neighbor. The Stanley Cup? This emblem of glory? Was misplaced. In the most direct way, this passage reminds us that we are to give God the greatest weight in our life because he deserves it. This is what David is getting at when he says in verse 2 Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name. Like Landeskog and the Stanley Cup. God, please hear me, is owed glory. That is, he deserves to bear the most weight in our life. Not something else. And I think here's the question this text presses us to ask, and that is, have I, have you, ascribed glory to the wrong address? Much like these guys did with the Stanley Cup. That is, am I giving God the glory he is owed? Faith, please hear me. The praise of man does not deserve to bear the most weight in your life. Your children do not deserve to bear the most weight in your life. Your feelings do not deserve to bear the most weight in your life. A certain lifestyle does not deserve to bear the most weight in your life. No, only God does. Look again at verse 2. When, when David says, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, it's important to note that David is referring to God's holiness, not ours. <laughs> the idea being, we are to worship the Lord for the splendor of His holiness. He is worthy of our praise simply for who He is. 
So again, I need to ask, as I've been asking myself, friend, are you giving God what is due to him? Give God the most weight because he deserves it. So what does that look like? Well, it looks like this. To give God the most weight in your life, it looks like you value his word and obedience to his commands above your feelings. It means you do what God calls you to do even when circumstances make that hard. Even when that choice to obey Jesus might bring reproach or suffering. It, to give God the most weight in your life, it means that in each and every situation, the question I ask myself is, how can I honor and glorify my Savior in this moment? How can I live for Him, not myself? This afternoon, married couples, how can I honor the Lord as I speak to my spouse? How can I honor the Lord when I interact with my children? How can I honor the Lord while I'm driving home in traffic? This is our North Star. How can I, as a redeemed child of God, bring honor and glory to my heavenly Father? This is what it looks like to have God bear the most weight in my life. I make God's priorities my priorities. Second, I want you to see that we are to give God the most weight in our lives because not only does he deserve it, but number two, he thunders in power. And that's what we see here in verses 3 through 9. Look there again. And notice the emphasis on the voice of the Lord. And I'm going to suggest that what, what David is describing here is the voice of the Lord in the flood that we see in Genesis. Okay? Let me read this. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God, the, sorry, the God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Can you see how this could actually happen in the flood? He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. This is lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, the response of God's people as they see this majestic display of power, all in his temple cry, glory. And verse 10, the first line, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Uh, five years ago, you, that's you, Faith Community Church graciously gave me an eight-week sabbatical, to which we are still very, very thankful for. 
And during that time, during my eight-week sabbatical, we visited a different church every Sunday. Now, uh, the Star Wars movie Rogue One had just hit theaters during my sabbatical, so my sons were really into Star Wars at that time. And the first church we visited was really, it was a small, small congregation. My wife Stephanie was actually out of town that weekend, so I had all four kids sitting with me there in the service. Well, about halfway through the sermon, my youngest son Noah, who was about four years old at the time, halfway through the sermon, he starts going like this, <laughs> moving his hands towards the preacher. So, so, I, so I lean over and whisper and say, Noah, no, what are you doing? To which he whispered back, she's like, I'm using the force. <laughs> he said, I'm trying to get the preacher to stop. <laughs> now, if some of you start doing this to me now, I know what you're doing. <laughs> now, to my son's dismay, the preacher kept going. Notice, unlike my son's attempt to use the force, notice what we see in this text, the voice of the Lord is effective. Indeed, as these verses testify, the voice of the Lord is not simply effective, accomplishing what it sets out to do, but it's powerful. In many ways, these verses, you know what they are? They're a storm tracker for God's frightening power. As several commentators have pointed out, this storm moves across the land of Israel from west to east. As it often happens in the Psalms, the literary devices are to do more than simply explain truth. They're, they're meant to make you feel God's truth. And the truth in this psalm is that the God who sits enthroned over all his creation has the power to do what he pleases. In particular, this psalm wants you to feel the majestic power and authority of God's voice. The word flood occurs 13 times in the Old Testament. 12 of those 13 occurrences are in Genesis, chapters 6 through 11, all referring to Noah's flood. You know where the 13th occurrence is? It's here in verse 10. This is why it's most likely that David is reflecting upon in describing the flood in Genesis. And what should be the response of God's people from such a majestic display of power? David tells us there in verse 9, all in his temple, meaning those who are redeemed, what do they cry? Glory. They're taken away. Faith, we do not serve a puny God. Amen? No, we serve a strong, mighty, and powerful God. One whose voice must be obeyed. Based on this awesome display of power, this is not a God to take lightly, is he? No. And that's the point. 
We have a God who thunders in power. But then third, we also have a God who reigns as king. Look at verse 10. He says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Now, I want you just to think for a moment. Think of how minuscule the world is that you control. Think of how many things actually operate under your command. It's almost a funny question, isn't it? And if you concentrate on this, you'll probably start with a long list, but as you're honest with yourself, it will get smaller and smaller and smaller. And friends, I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but the truth is, you have very, very limited power and such limited rule. But God does not. He not only ruled over the flood, but he is currently ruling over everything. Amen? Now, what's the big deal about ruling over the flood? Well, what you have to understand is that in pagan materials like the Gilgamesh epic, what you understand is this, the pagan gods, they go berserk over the flood. That is, they become terror-stricken and cower like dogs at the flood. You see, in pagan thought, the gods brought the flood and then were terrified with what they let loose. Not so with the Lord. He sat enthroned at the flood. He was there. He was in control. His voice was guiding and directing everything. He was Lord and sat enthroned over the flood, and he sits enthroned now as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And again, this contrast is to again further the point that we ought to give the Lord, not our idols, the most weight in our lives. And then finally, we ought to give God the most weight in our lives because what an encouragement this is. He strengthens his people. Look at how David ends the psalm in verse 11. He says, May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Friend, I want to argue this is, this is actually a promise. And the question becomes, how will God bring this promise to pass? How will God strengthen his people and give them peace? And you know what the answer is? The answer is found in the work of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, you know what we receive? You know what we receive like a flood? The gift of his spirit, whom Jesus refers to as the comforter. You see, friend, please hear me. There is a coming storm of God's judgment and no one can escape it. One far greater than that of the flood. 
You see, in many ways, this passage is like the National Weather Service. It's here to warn you. Scripture teaches that in our natural state, we all have fallen short of God's glory. As our creator and king, we have not lived for God like we ought. We have not loved and served him like we ought. No, instead, we have chosen to live for ourselves. You know what we've done? We've given our wants and wishes the most weight in our lives, and we've trivialized the majesty of our creator. The Bible has a word for that, and it's called sin. And due to our sin, all of us come into this world in our natural condition under the wrath of God. You see, friend, please hear me. Our fundamental problem isn't a lack of knowledge or spiritual enlightenment. No, our fundamental problem is sin. And we all know this. No one thinks they're perfect. We all know that we've chosen to live for ourselves rather than God. In fact, I know for certain that we've all done things or we've thought things that we'd be absolutely terrified if others found out. Everyone knows they're a sinner with imperfections and flaws. That's not our problem. You know what our problem is? Our problem is we just don't think our sin deserves judgment. But it does. And Scripture makes this abundantly clear. Our sin, friend, earns us something, and that is eternal judgment from God in hell. And this is precisely why we need David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For on the cross, Jesus absorbed the judgment you and I are owed for our sin. Jesus solved our greatest problem. That's what makes the word of the cross good news. Look, friend, you cannot save yourself. Your righteous actions are but a dirty rag before a holy God. Friend, you need a power outside of yourself to pay for the penalty of your sins, and that's exactly what God has provided in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The good news of the Bible is that Jesus Christ lived that perfect life we have failed to live. Then he went to the cross, and on the cross he died the death we are owed. He took the storm of God's judgment upon himself. And then three days later he rose from the dead so that all who believe in him would not experience God's judgment, but God's favor. They'd become a child of God. Friend, the cross of Christ is the power of God for those who are being saved. And this salvation is received simply by faith. Not righteousness, but rather an admittance that I am unrighteous and I need the perfect righteousness and work of Jesus to save me from my sin and to make me right with God. Friend, has there been a moment in time in your life where you've done that, where you've gone all in, trusting Christ, acknowledging you can't save yourself, and believing his word when it says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
Friend, the storm's coming. And you have a refuge in Christ. And the good news of Jesus and the call of Jesus is that you would run to him. Let today be the day of salvation for you. For those of you who have fled to Jesus, for those of you who have put your faith in him, do you know what you have dwelling within you now, Christian? You have the Spirit of God. You know what this means? This means you have the assurance that God will never leave you nor forsake you. And you know what that reality produces in the life of the believer? Peace. And not just peace, but strength to obey God's commands and to persevere through trials. May it be said of us as a church that God bore the most weight in our lives. That His commands, His good word, and His holiness are our greatest concern. Amen? Let's pray.